everyone's worried about this 1.5 increase in temperature, but for countries living on the equator, 1.5 is not the concern. You know, we're worried about maybe a two to four percent increase in temperature around the equator and that's 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 huge hello and welcome to the humans for cause podcast by coaching for cause the humans for cause podcast is all about taking a deeper look into the subjects that we specialize in from sustainability to social enterprise we will be talking to real humans about the causes that they are passionate about we will leave no stone unturned as we talk and chat our way to understanding the world around us so that together we can create solutions make positive change and productive impact This podcast has been recorded with our community in mind. So let's get going. My name is Olivia Taylor and I'm with Joshua Amponson. And today we'll be diving deep into the topic of climate adaptation in Africa. Joshua is an environmental and climate activist from Ghana. He is the founder of Green Africa Youth Organization. He focuses on the role of youth in climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction and resilience building. His work aims to enhance the meaningful inclusion of youth and children in local and global development processes. And I am a sustainability and investment analyst from South Africa, and I want to better understand how to manage the resource demands between people and the planet. So, in discussions on climate change, many people are concerned about what the future holds and talk about turning off the metaphorical tap of carbon emissions. But here in Africa, Um, We are not only starting to feel the effects, but we are already drowning. The tap has been on so long that the bath is overflowing. After outlining these issues, Joshua and I will discuss some ideas and solutions to this problem. So why is Africa being hit so hard by climate change? Firstly, millions of people depend on rainfall to grow their food in Africa. Secondly, the climate uh, the climate system is vastly understudied. So it is therefore capable of all sorts of surprises. And um, third, climate change is expected to continue hitting Africa hard. The two biggest areas of extensive land-based end of century projected decreases in rainfall anywhere on the planet occur in Africa. Um, So one over North Africa and the other over Southern Africa. I have a personal story about a drought in Cape Town that I will share later. And finally, the capacity and policy and finance for adaptation to climate change is low. Poverty equates to reduced choice for individuals while the government usually fails to prioritize and act on climate change. So let's take this back a few steps. What is adaptation? Adaptation is the process of adjustment or change to actual or expected climate risks and effects. So we could ask, how are climate risks going to intersect with Africa's development trajectories? And therefore, how can we build climate resilience on this continent? As a result, what does a lack of adaptation look like in Africa? So this can be explained uh, through something called a poverty cycle or poverty trap which I learned about through the University of Cape Town's um, climate adaptation course. So a poverty cycle or a poverty trap is a cyclical process where somebody who's relatively poor battling to get out of poverty. For example, a poor farmer has low productive uh, capacity and yield on their farm. So growing produce to sell and make money and build up assets is very difficult. So then comes up climate change 
which could lead to a drought or a pest outbreak, which puts the farmer back two more steps. So this cycle of trap prohibits one from re recovering or climbing out of poverty. And climate stresses, therefore, are a way in which we can experience this, um, which locks people into poverty. So for example, Mozambique a couple of years ago was hit with um, some heavy flooding. This is in 2000. And it was followed by a hurricane, which further exacerbated this like, saturated land. Um, and there were 700 deaths from this, 45, um, 450,000 people were made homeless, and there was huge economic damage. Um, and it actually reset the country back 10 years prior to the following end of the last war. Um, so it was at the same economic standpoint. Um, and so basically what this shows is that economic country, uh, African countries are much more sensitive. Um, and we have something called an adaptation deficit, which is a reason for greater vulnerability in Africa. So something else I wanted to say about this is, um, you know, there was, a, there was a hurricane Sandy in America, which happened a couple of years later. And the economic damage from that was not as much, there were not as many deaths and not nearly as many people were, were made homeless. So um, this is what the adaptation deficit in Africa shows us is that with, better capacity and financial resources, there's less vulnerability. So this is why there's a greater vulnerability in Africa. And this adaptation deficit, um, to be overcome, we, you just have to build resilience to, to current climate risks, which means you have to understand them. And it has to be money that, go, that goes into that research. Um, and this adaptation deficit is, is really strongly correlated with broader development challenges, which can be further exacerbated by something called maladaptation. So maladaptation is something that increases the risks of adverse climate outcomes. So Joshua, would you mind giving us an example of what these you know, outcomes can be? Tell us a little bit about adaptation or maladaptation. Thank you very much, Olivia. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Maladaptation occurs when you try to, of course, respond to adaptation in a way that you provide resources, intervention to a target group, trying to provide them with safety, reduce their harm, moderate the impact of a climate effect. But the way you do it is in a way that after some few moments later on down the road, they are even more affected than they were before. A very good example is when you have flooding or flash floods and the government's or the disaster management organization quickly wants to respond by relocation as an intervention. Relocation then means that you move a couple of households, let's say you have 100 people, you move them to a new location, you build an affordable housing unit, you put them there, it's uh, away from the flats, great. But if all these 100 people were fishermen or fisherwomen who had their livelihood linked to fishing or linked to the to the river where they used to stay, where the flooding was more a risk. And you move them very uphill where they have no skills to make a living there. Then yes, you've uh, sort of solved one problem with the flood risk itself, but you move them to a location where they are more vulnerable economically and socially. And that becomes another risk which you have to deal with because then you have 100 people with no livelihood. So this can occur in a social economic system in an ecological context. Uh, if they are farmers and you move them from close to a river where they had access to irrigation and you move them uphill 
where they have a dry spell or more drier areas and the type of crops they grow and they're familiar to, they are not able to grow it over there. You've literally incapacitated them in a way that they cannot function anymore as a community. So that is a sort of a effect of maladaptation or the occurrence of maladaptation. And this, uh, in the context of Africa, particularly, this is where uh, one of some of the main things we have to look at when we talk at, about adaptation is food security and agriculture. Um, this is essential to Africa because, uh, I mean, we have huge percentage of the of the African economy depending on agriculture. I mean, in some countries, it's as much as eighty percent of the whole population relying on agriculture. An example would be Niger, for instance. Uh, and if you have communities like this who depend strictly on agriculture for a livelihood, what happens is that currently, as we see in Africa, of course, the weather patterns have changed. This is important, but there's still lack of sort of a, a, a advanced technologies and understanding and different farming practices that is adaptable to the new weather conditions that people are seeing every year. That means that farmers are losing their harvest, they are losing their crops, uh, the soil is uh, being rendered infertile or not as fertile as before because of combination of droughts and floods. This makes it very, very important. Uh, um, also two significant things that we have on the continent that makes Africa very, very uh, prone and makes adaptation important, but not yet a high priority is because I mean, as a continent, we do not have very sudden extreme weather events. This is only very possible in few areas. We have very slow uh, 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 occurrences of events like droughts. I mean, it takes quite some time before it manifests. So it doesn't happen overnight. And then you have a huge humanitarian aid or coming to your assistance. Uh, even floods, I mean, they are periodic. Uh, if I look at countries like uh, um, Ghana, uh, if you look at Accra, I mean, this happens every year uh, around June, July, you have your sort of a, a, a perennial floods, which occurs, but it's been tagged as something that happens within a period of time. It's going to go away. Life goes on. This makes it very difficult if you have a, a, a livelihood around food, agriculture, which are very linked to the weather. So farmers grow their crops and then the, the rainfalls delay the crops do not uh, uh, germinate, right? And then right afterwards, they are hoping the rains will come. But when the rains come, the rain come in very, very uh, high intensity. The precipitation is very high. And then it leads to flooding or logging, which wash away everything that they've sowed. One, this lost of their money. They've lost their money, the seeds they bought uh, for planting, they've lost it. The second bit is also that, of course, then they need a, a sort of another... A livelihood because it's no more possible to plant, to plant, the flood must go away. This makes it very important. The other bit about food a deficit or food security and agriculture for Africa is the, the effect of malnutrition on the continent. We have a very youthful, youthful continent. I mean, we're talking about getting almost 60% of, of, of youth on the continent. Now, if you have a huge population of, of young people being uh, malnourished at a younger stage. The effect of mal mal malnutrition really goes a long way. And one of the significant things is, one, it reduces their sort of productive lives. Uh, so you have less productive lives, which end up making people very poor because they had a 
poor development as a kid, uh, either lack of skills, uh, uh, also affecting their own intelligence and academic performances. This, of course, in the long run leads to uh, uh, most, more of these young people not being able to be very uh, fit in the economic development that the continent is, is, is progressing on. So this leads to poverty, and then you have a sort of a continuous cycle of being poor and being malnourished happening over and over again because of climate change and its uh, influence on food security. So this is very, this is very essential. Uh, um, and I'm going to look to you, Olivia, and ask um, uh, if you have sort of, a, a, what do you think about this? What are some concrete sort of uh, um, examples you know about food uh, uh, on the continent? Uh, and, and we can proceed to think around how do we move past uh, this challenge we have when it comes to food? Cool, thank you so much, Josh, I appreciate it. Um, thank you for also linking malnutrition back to that poverty cycle that I was talking about earlier. And um, the, you know, how it continues to trap people. If you're not able to reach your productive capacity, then you're not able, you know, you, you might not be able to get that job that you need because you can't work as hard to get the marks that you need. I mean, we, we know. Um, so you've, you've asked me some interesting questions here. So first, I'm just going to go back. You know, I did speak about the adaptation deficit already and about food security. But I, I, I want to say this. Um, the Food World Programme defines food security as when people have availability and adequate access at all times to sufficient, safe and nutritious food to maintain a healthy, active lifestyle. Um, but this can be understood by three pillars, availability, access and utilisation. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about those three things. Uh, pillar number one is availability. And this really talks to there being enough food on a consistent basis um, that either comes through subsistence farming, local production, um, and storage of local produce as well, um, or otherwise, alternatively, um, produce that is brought in from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, perhaps by trade or even by aid. The second pillar is access to food. And access is talking about you know, needing it when perhaps there's a drought in the area and now you can't grow your own food. So, so what is your access like? Um, and do you have enough money to buy this food when you can't produce it locally? Um, so the third pillar um, is really around utilization. And this talks about the food or the nutritional benefit. So, you know, do you have food in your kitchen? How do you cook? Um, do you know how to prepare it? Do you know how to nourish your body with the right mix of nutrients? Uh, do all the different people in the household get the right nutrients they need? So that is really um, that, that last part that I wanted to add about, you know, these, these three different pillars that you can look at to, to understand food security. So Josh, to answer your question about a case study, you know, there's this um, Dr. Simon Angombe, who studied at the University of Namibia, and he discusses three really interesting kinds of adaptation that have been happening um, with livestock farmers in northern Namibia. So I want to look at that and um, adaptation in the forms of what they've been doing about the decreasing rainfall. So the first one that we're going to look at is that some farmers have begun to farm 
wildlife rather than domestic livestock. And this is strategic because wildlife is much more uh, uh, habituated and adapted to survive the harsher environments, the less water due to you know, the lack of rainfall. Um, so in terms of cost, you don't really have much input cost um, because these animals are also used to surviving off, off um, ag uh, uh, agriculture that, or, or, or plant life that is, you, know, you don't have to use a lot of water to, to farm. So there's you know, less inputs. Um, the second thing that people have started to do about adaptation is implementing early warning systems. Um, so this is something that the ministry can set up, um, which is a topic for another day. But the, the third one that I want to talk about are extension services. And these are very important because uh, farmers need to have information about what's going on. Information about the climate, information about the market, and um, they get generally get this information from the ministry. So we need to understand how they can communicate better. And um, also to get information, the, the most up-to-date information about how to farm given the current climate. So getting the most updated research and information about how to handle different types of farming activities. So that is what I wanted to say about, uh, about agricultural, um, uh, and, and agricultural resilience and food security. But I'm gonna ask Joshua now to go back. I think it's time we talk about water resilience. And if you wouldn't mind taking it away and you know, let's kickstart this discussion about, about water security in Africa. Um, I know we could sit and talk about agricultural security all day. So let's get this discussion started. Great. Thank you, Olivia. Um, and, and thanks for those examples. And to just to reflect a little bit on that, uh, particularly, and also this will lead us to the water resilience uh, topic. Uh, um, the, the need for early warning systems uh, are very essential. But even more important uh, on early warning systems uh, is the response capacity. So uh, early warning systems have different components to it. First of all, you need to have the, the tools to be able to, to measure uh, uh, whatever parameters that allows you to know what's the impact of, of the effects you have ahead of you. The second bit is being able to communicate that and disseminate this information to, to communities. Uh, and if we look, for instance, if we look at what happened uh, with Cyclone Eda in Mozambique, uh, of course, there was a, a bit of proximity uh, to understanding what the impact of the cyclone would be. There was uh, efforts to disseminate this information, but it couldn't reach anyone or everyone. Uh, in the case of Zimbabwe, for instance, and people were taken by surprise. So having the capacity to even put the system in place, disseminate information to everyone is very, very important. And I really like what you mentioned around making sure that people know up to date uh, uh, what is happening, what are the different strategies they can adopt. But even more important is after they know, do they have the resources to act? Do they have the capacity to actually act? Even if you tell them that, okay, look guys, uh, um, the next uh, uh, farming season, there's going to be uh, heavy flats, what else could they do? Uh, and this is a very uh, bigger question, which I, I hope we will talk about that later on. Uh, when it comes to water, um, I mean, Olivia, you come, from, you come from South Africa, so you will know how, how critical this topic is. Uh, I mean, the city of Cape Town uh, got to day zero. Uh, this was a global 
uh, occurrence. Uh, everyone was talking about, uh, I visited around that time, this was intense. I mean, you, you had to turn off everything. You couldn't use water the way you, th you thought you could use water. Now, it's not just Cape Town. Cape Town is a city, so there was a bit of a, an ambience and a, a bit of sort of a, a romanticizing the issue to get global attention. But there are many more communities on the continent who have nothing when it comes to water. Uh, and this is the problem. The problem is that the, the continent itself is situated, uh, particularly if I look at countries along the Sahelian Strip. Uh, I mean, all these countries are really in a very dry zone. So water availability with or without, they say, climate change was not even favorable in the first place. Now, with climate change and, and sort of increasing temperatures, I mean, all water sources are drying up very fast. This, this makes it very difficult. The second bit, as, as you might have mentioned, the second bit is that we also have sort of a livelihood system which depends heavily on water. I mean, again, if you go to food, it's, it's going to be about water. If you look at livestock, the pastoralist in Ethiopia, I mean, it's about water. The animals need to drink, they need to graze. Everything is linked to water. Now let's look at domestic activities. You need water for almost everything in life. I mean, it goes with the saying, water is life. So it's, it's really essential. Uh, and the difficult part of what, what we have is that communities do not have the infrastructure needed to access water. It's not that the water itself might not be available. In some contexts, water is available. The infrastructure to access the water is very difficult. In other contexts, it's about shared resources. And let me, let me use this opportunity to also highlight the, the, the long-held conflict around the Nile, for instance. The Nile is a significant water source that can serve a lot of communities economically, livelihood-wise, water, I mean, in terms of domestic water usage, agricultural purposes, but the conflict around the resource makes it very, very difficult. And as it stands now, there is not so much understanding between climate change, water resilience, and conflict. And this is a very big, big issue to look at. I mean, we, we know that Ethiopia, Egypt, I mean, the, the main countries around the Nile have, have their own back and forth, and they're dealing with this issue to settle that conflict so the Nile can be put to the better use for, for, for communities and countries along this area. But also, if you look at it around the, for the whole sub-Saharan Africa, there is more need for research to understand how water resource really drives conflict. And, and I know personally, I mean, I know that in northern Ghana, crossing over to Burkina Faso, for instance, during the dry season, water becomes a very critical resource. So every other pastoralist have to walk with their cattle for several kilometers to find a water source. Now, you go to another person's location and you want to access their water source. They also need that water source. And then it starts creating a conflict of, oh, you can't bring your animals here. You're not allowed to bring the animals here. And then it's either they are killing the animals because you're not allowed to bring them to access that water source or it's leading to another form of conflict. And this affects livelihood again. It affects uh, economic development of these individuals. So the point is we, we are still in an era where it's not just about the, the portable water that we use domestically, but it's also about water as a livelihood, as a means by which people actually earn a living. So even if uh, the government is going to transport clean water to, to households, it doesn't still offer them a livelihood. 
And here it is very essential that we look at we look at infrastructure that allow for increased access to water. We need to look at very affordable and easy to implement technologies. Of course, rain, rainwater harvesting has been something that has been talked about in the past a lot. I know several communities who are putting these systems in place. The question is, uh, is this actually enough to serve both needs? And both needs being one is for domestic purposes as, as drinking water, cooking, everything. The other bit is for agricultural and livelihood purposes. Is this enough? Two, what is the implication on health? Because uh, I also know that along the Sahelian Strip, water scarcity, aside is leading to conflict, has also, had also been a very severe issue for gender-based violence, for uh, uh, child abuse, uh, and additionally to that for also sort of uh, um, uh, sanitation-related diseases and outbreaks. And how do we ensure that whatever technology we put in place should also be something that secures the health, well-being, and basic human rights of individuals within this region? So when it really comes to water scarcity uh, and water resilience, there are, there are two key things I see. One is there has to be a very strong infrastructural support for the continent. And this will mean that adaptation finance must flow to countries where there is a scarcity to invest in technology transfers. And we're going to talk about technology probably another time or later on. But we need technology transfers that allow to maximize the moments when the water is in excess. So we have parts of parts of the of countries and, and the continent where when it rains, it rains really high precipitation, unexpected causing flooding. How do we tap into that? After all, this is the basic definition of adaptation. You moderate harm, you explore beneficial purposes. So how do we capitalize on when we have the rain in excess, store that, treat it, and make it usable for both domestic purposes and also for household, uh, for, for, for agricultural and livelihood purposes. The second bit is also providing insurance, providing climate insurance for, for farmers, uh, for people who live in this area, in a way that if there should be a drought, there is sort of a, either an index-based uh, insurance scheme, which offers a very good payout to farmers, so that they do not really have to be so scared in investing into the agriculture and their livelihood, because Again, we are getting into this cycle again. You, you lose water or you have a water scarcity. It leads to you not being able to practice your agricultural livelihood, leading to food insecurity, leading to malnutrition, increasing poverty. Then you have conflict, gender-based violence. Again, then this keeps crippling the continent, uh, the sub-Saharan African and, the, and these challenges around climate. So it's water resilience. Is food security we've talked about, but we need to also see that it disconnects to a lot of critical human rights issues, which have to be which have to be looked at. And I know that Olivia, you have uh, um, sort of projections around what how scary this looks like for the future. And I'll turn over to you now to to get into that. Thanks, Josh. I actually just want to go back to one of the points that you made earlier about um, you know technologies and. What to do with excess water when certain countries do get it and you know it's, i live in south africa and one of the provinces in south africa gauteng gets a lot of its water from a different country that is landlocked by south africa called lesotho and there is an issue here where lesotho is supposed to be getting compensated for providing water to gauteng 
but the money is not trickling down to those most vulnerable in, in this community. Um, 80, 80, uh, sorry, 28% of um, Lesotho's GDP can be attributed to South Africa's buying of their water. Um, also, this water is being unequally distributed to wealthy areas and to mining sites instead of those who need it in poorer areas. So I just wanted to say more about that. So, you know, linking it back to social issues, it, the list is endless. But uh, to go back to these, these projections about Africa that I was talking about, you know, um, everyone's worried about this 1.5 increase in temperature. But for countries living on the equator, 1.5 is not the concern. You know, we're worried about maybe a two to four percent increase in temperature around the equator, and that's 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 huge. So with these extremes that we're going to start seeing, when it does rain, the rainfall is going to be much much stronger and much more intense, um, leading to you know greater rainfall damage and flood damage, um, and the number of days with rainfall will decrease. So the dry spells are going to be extended between uh, between rainfall events. Um, which is a problem. So I would like to talk about um, two different types of adaptation that we have. And this is going to lead to my experience in Cape Town with, with the drought that happened. And I just want a full disclaimer, I lived a very privileged experience through the drought. I still had access to water. Uh, you know, the, the inconveniences that I, I experienced were minor. I just had to flush my toilet with, you know, shower water for three years. And that was really annoying, but you know, I didn't experience like um, a major crisis. Although for a lot of people living in European countries, maybe that is a major crisis. I don't know. So, given these extreme weather conditions, um, the likelihood of, of you know the rainfall getting stronger, or you know, when it does rain, it's going to rain a lot harder, and when it, you know, the, the driest spells are going to increase in length, and it's it's going to make you know living in Africa and agriculture really difficult. Um, it's going to make a lot of people's lives really you know really tough and the experience that i had was was a very privileged experience like i said but um basically what happened in cape town is it was the first major city in the world to experience climate change and such a huge natural disaster um for such an extended period that was what was such um so prominent about it and we had a couple of options to look at that the the, the municipality and other government considered and Desalination um, was one of the options, which is when you turn salt water, because Cape Town is obviously on the coast, it's when you turn salt water into um, potable drinking water. Um, but it was incredibly expensive. Um, and that is an example of, of, of a supply chain option, which looks at um, hard adaptation. Um, but, you know, there were some other important cost considerations to bear in mind, and that you know, it was actually going to increase demand if we if we put a desalination tank in. So instead, the government decided to go with plan two, which was to reduce demand and to work on better demand management. And there are two types of demand management that we can talk about or demand management options. And the first is a soft adaptation option, which looks at working around, working with existing equipment, um, if you like, but using less through changes in behavior. Um, and then the second option, okay, so let me, sorry, let me just say, for the first option, that's, that's what Cape Town ended up going with, which was getting us to change our behavior. And, you know, um, 
I lived in a digs of three people. I was studying at the time. And, you know, we had something called the Royal Flush and it's not glamorous, but we, we basically were only allowed to flush our toilet once a day. And we were limited to 50 liters of water a day, which is a very short shower. Um, you know, washing your dishes all together at the end of the day, not ever taking your car to get washed. It's, you know, it's a lot of work. I mean, and that was, again, like that was me living a very privileged experience. That's how it, it, it was difficult in my life. Um, but the second option for demand management is more of an engineering or hard option, which is changing to a more efficient uh, water use system. Um, but, you know, that can sometimes be quite extreme. So other things that we were asked to do in our personal capacity were leakage repair, pressure management, um, you know, better standards and regulations are built. We actually had a, a website you could go on and check to see your area and there was a map and it would show you who was using the most water in the area. So it's actually kind of a shame system. Um, you can work with the pricing of water, um, which is not very successful in Africa, to be honest. There's not much evidence of it. It works better in Europe. Um, but that's, you know, those are, those are some of the other things that we looked at, but it was, it was a really difficult time. And luckily that, you know, that happened from 2018, 2020, we've had a lot of rain um, and we're lucky we, we, we're out of it, but you know, we're not out of the clear in, in total. If it's happened once, it can happen again. And um, yeah, that's what I, I'd like to say about that. So Joshua, to kind of wrap up what we've been looking at, let's chat about some solutions, some, you know, conceptual solutions, some actual solutions. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to, to look at is, as someone who's, a, who's fairly new at it, but, but in, in the industry, I, I now look at uh, an investment and um, sustainability and the intersection between the two. And I would really love to see the creation of platforms for the facilitation of better capital flows into Africa. You know, we really need to capacitate Africans to apply their own solutions that they have conceptualized for themselves. Um, Africans have the solutions. You know, we just, they just need the, the capacity and the, the bringing the infrastructure in to, to actually do it. Um, and we need to keep investment flowing into the continent. And, you know, to do this, we need to create both policy and tech to facilitate this process. So now I'm going to, you know, ask Joshua, what do you, what do you think some of these solutions are? Um, um, thanks, Olivia. Uh, certainly, certainly investment is one of the most important things we can think about when we look at adaptation. This is because the, the, the global financing scheme uh, um, doesn't look so good for adaptation. A, a lot of funding since 1992, when they set up the, the climate, uh, the Kyoto Protocol, uh, the climate uh, negotiations, uh, all financing mechanisms have looked at reducing our carbon emissions, reducing our carbon emissions, as you said in the beginning, there's enough carbon out there to cause a lot of damage to the whole world, uh, but some countries are not really prepared for this, and Africa is one of those uh, as a continent, and that makes it really critical that the investments should change from reducing emissions and start looking at building capacity of countries, communities to be able to deal with the effects that is already out there. We can't take it back. I mean, even if we get to carbon zero tomorrow, I mean, Africa, South Asia, some continents are really going to be in a bad position for the next century. This is essential. We need to look into that. The, when I talk about investment coming in, the investment should be able to reach local communities. It shouldn't sit at a central government level and it shouldn't spend a lot of them going into 
meetings and policy formulation processes. And by the time you get a policy done, you have no money to implement. The funding coming in should be designed in a way that it's able to reach community-based organizations. It's easy to reach farmer groups. It's easy to reach uh, civil society organizations who can put this money into direct use at the community level. And in terms of what adaptation looks like uh, for the continent, it's also really a matter of institutional structures. We need to upgrade our institutional structures such that the solutions that are designed have a lot of community input, a lot of input from the target groups, rather than having people sitting at the capital in, in the office and designing the solutions largely from some sort of research that is done. That is good, it's working in some context. The challenge is that it makes it much more easier if you really design the solutions together, really directly together with uh, folks who are really seeing the impacts every day, everyday life. Uh, that makes it very, very essential. Now, again, I'll go back to youth because this is the work I do. Uh, the continent with most uh, population being young people, we also need uh, a structure that favors for youth input into adaptation strategies and adaptation policy. Young people now on the continent are resorting to entrepreneurship as the first sense of act when it comes to climate. So it's either advocacy or you, you innovate and you come up with a, a sort of a, a technological solution. Most cases, I mean, different apps, different uh, digital services, linking to climate and helping communities to be more resilient. That is great. But the thing is, none of these solutions are very small scale and they are not getting to sort of being very operationalized and scaling across the continent because the policies are not favorable. And hence, it's very essential to get these entrepreneurs who are innovating, who are creating some of these solutions to sit on the table and make these strategies together on the adaptation front. Uh, it is also very essential for the continent to realize that uh, adaptation for us should really look at ecosystem-based and nature-based solutions rather than gray infrastructure. The, the challenge of this, again, is the institutional structure uh, across the continent. We have political systems that are very uh, uh, linked to focusing on securing political positions, political uh, favoritism by the people, which means that you want a solution that can be uh, can, that can fix the problem pretty quick. So if you have a flooding, the easiest is you build a sea defense wall or you build some sort of a bridge, you build a dike, this is construction. I mean, you have the money, you get it done. The challenge with that is that it doesn't really give long-term benefit to the people compared to an ecosystem-based adaptation where you can rather invest a lot into uh, uh, either mangrove reforestation projects uh, uh, or into um, a sort of a, a nature-based uh, approach where you are using nature to fix some of these issues, either through uh, 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 soil and water management or even through a sort of an afforestation project that allows you to sort of provide a microclimate to solve droughts or even better waste management strategies, which allow you to capitalize on the huge organic waste that is in Africa to go into composting to enrich soils. These are things that we are highly underestimated because they have a long span to see the results, but they are what we need because we can't rely on quick fix that knock people into poverty again because you build a sea defense wall or the community cannot really uh, fish again. They can't have access to the coast, some of the coastal services anymore. And this is what we've been doing. I mean, so far, a lot of the uh, adaptation mechanisms have been forcing to relocate people uh, or some sort of a uh, gray infrastructure or mechanical 
uh, infrastructure support. And I think it's very essential that we look into ecosystem because I mean, also you have a youth population, which means you're gonna stick around for a long time and their future must be secure. And the way to do that is to really put ecosystems into better regula regulatory use where they, where they regulate some of these impacts of climate change and provide a better uh, a sort of a, a ecosystem and conducive ecosystem for growth. So this is what we need to do in Africa to enhance adaptation. It's been very wonderful uh, time having this conversation together with Olivia Taylor uh, uh, in South Africa and myself from Ghana. Uh, this was very important for us to share this message and we really call on everyone listening to this podcast to really advocate for increase in adaptation and even more particularly nature-based solutions and ecosystem-based adaptation for Africa. We need to reduce our emissions, but we need to also realize that the emissions are already out there and the effects of that is really driving a lot of people into poverty and putting a lot of people at risk. And we are counting on your support together with Coaching for Course and our podcast to drive ambition and drive climate adaptation in Africa. Thank you very much and catch you next time. Thank you so much for listening. You are now in a position to change someone's life for the better. If someone popped into your head as you were listening to this episode, send them the link now. Isn't that a guaranteed way to make someone's day? We think so. Now we hope that you learned something today and if you did, let us know. Tag us on Instagram using at Coaching for Cause and if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so via our Patreon page and the link for that is in our show notes. Coaching for Cause is an online coaching platform that brings people, coaches and NGOs together to help themselves and to help the world. To find out more and to get involved, head to www.coachingforcause.com and join our community. We'd love to have you. Oh, and one final thing. We regularly release new podcasts, so please subscribe before this episode ends, which will be in five, four, three, two, one. See you later.